It's Monday morning. Must mean another episode of No Driving Gloves with John and Derek. And Will's using his self-employment as an excuse. Uh, he can't be with us tonight. and He's had a car being delivered to the shop. Literally, he joined us for a moment or two. And this car he expected tomorrow morning, the customer showed up. So I guess they're unloading a new project. And this is a hobby for us. And certain things pay the bills. You know, you... You you give him a lot more sick time on this show than I get. Uh, I think he just takes more sick time. If you look at the benefit package, uh, you don't get any. So, ah man, have you been up to anything exciting this week? I know you've been traveling and all over the country. I don't know what you can say you've been doing and what you haven't. I know I saw some stuff on the YouTube's about you being at certain shows with certain cars, but. We're traveling. We've got some things. The the Concours and you know car show schedule is always this time of the year unfolding and and trying to figure out where we're going to be and and start letting people know where they're going to see us. You know, nothing one hundred percent firmly locked in to announce yet. I've had a busy about week and a half. I've been to Detroit, uh, been to Ohio to talk to uh, a group from the uh, NCCC, which is the National Council of Corvette Clubs. Just just kind of running all over, as it seems I always do. And, of course, <clears throat> we're about a month and a half away from the opening of our new gateway exhibit and admissions area at the museum. So, Pretty much any spare moment of time I have is dedicated to, you know, writing exhibit content, um, working with our graphic artists to get the graphics ready. My my trip to Detroit last week was to do research at the Heritage Center on some early Corvette history and pull some of the original documentation out and, and make sure we, we get everything accurate. Uh, we are a museum and educational institution after all, and we want to make sure that what we uh, put in the exhibit is right. Gateway, is that just a code name for the new like ticket takers walk-in entrance, or does that relate back to St. Louis and the Gateway Arch and the time that Corvette spent in uh, St. Louis? Or am I asking too much? It actually is just a, it, it's what that area of the museum was named when it was built. Kind of one of the, the slogans of the museum when it was built was that it was the gateway to everything Corvette. And so they named the very first kind of gallery area, exhibit area, the gateway. So that's kind of where that name comes from. It doesn't really come from, you know, the Gateway Arch in St. Louis or anything like that. It it just literally is uh, talking about being the entryway to the history of Corvette. And that was really one of the big inspirations for the exhibit we're doing uh, because it's, it's going to be a little different exhibit than I think, uh, you know, museum goers have been used to in the past because... Although one of the earliest uh, Corvettes produced will be in the exhibit, the other three cars in the exhibit are not Corvettes. There's a MGTC in the exhibit talking about European sports cars and their impact on Corvette. Uh, there will be a Crosley Hotshot on exhibit uh, talking about the pre-Corvette American sports car post-World War II. 
We'll also have a car that is known as the Stout Y46 on display, which is actually the pretty much the first uh, fiberglass, full fiberglass bodied car ever built uh, by Bill Stout, who did the Stout Scarab and some of those vehicles. So that'll be on display to talk a little bit about the history of fiberglass and its use as an automotive body. Proof of concept, in a way, of fiberglass, because in my research at uh, Heritage Center, I actually found a letter from Owens Corning Fiberglass, uh, you know, the, the chemical company Owens Corning, uh, that referenced the Stout Y46 because they built the body for it. And they suggested GM take a look at the car to learn a little bit about fiberglass. So interesting ties, interesting stories that, you know, kind of will help people understand why Corvette came about and and how it came about. That fascinates me. That kind of stuff, you know, is amazing. I was involved with a restoration of a stout scarab many years ago. It's toured and such. And, you know, that car was a revolutionary, kind of the first minivan. Look it up on the internet if uh, you if you get a chance or maybe I'll dig out some pictures and get them to our social media, I promise. And sometimes I do deliver there that I didn't, I wasn't aware he went on to do a, a fiberglass vehicle. Uh, and I, I, one of my passions we talk about are kit cars and that, and I always look at uh, Jeffrey Hacker of forgotten fiberglass. As a matter of fact, on my new ventures, Facebook page, I just shared an article about Jeffrey and kind of how he's, He's doing what you're doing, and I really like seeing this at the Corvette Museum. You're educating people beyond the Corvette and the impact, and, you know, General Motors just didn't all of a sudden come up with this idea. Fiberglass cars were everywhere in the 50s with all these new innovations, these guys fresh out of the service with a little bit of money and dreams and the attitude that uh, I can do anything, and... I've got a story from years ago. Um, guy's name's Merrill. He used to be involved with the Victorious Sports Cars and how he actually helped Lotus with their fiber, or their their first fiberglass cars in the late fifties. So it's just I, I'm really excited to see this exhibit. I say I'm going to come up and see a lot of yours. I, I'm going to need to come by and you know see this, and I'm assuming it's going to be more of a permanent rather than rotating part of the collection. But right now we'll just say. It's a rotating part of the collection. Go up. You never know what Derek's going to do or when Derek's going to get fired and somebody's going to go, this should be only Corvettes. <laughs> so, you know, he's pushed the envelope, I think, a lot with the Corvette Museum. Let me just say, go, went through the Corvette Museum the first time I did, and that was years before Derek was ever there. And I'm a, I'm a Corvette kind of fan. I've never owned one. I've come close. But the museum gets boring when it's all Corvettes, and it's not teaching me things how they Corvette relates to the outside world and the couple of exhibits Derek's brought and I, I I'm sure it has something to do with some other people and not just him they're really trying to educate the public around the Corvette and about the Corvette and how certain things came to be I just think it's kind of exciting and and there are days that you know, I'm envious of Derek, <laughs> so uh, it's kind of a co- cool place to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's fun, and like you say, it's it's not necessarily a. The vehicles aren't permanent. the The exhibit itself, the exhibit area, 
the stories we tell uh, will be somewhat permanent and the cars will be interchanged. So, you know, yes, we're, we're going to have the Stout Y46 on loan for probably two years. And uh, after that, you know, I, I actually know Jeff Hacker very well. Uh, Jeff and I talk quite frequently on the phone. Um, as you say, he's got an amazing amazing knowledge and, and collection of the the pre-corvette fiberglass sports cars and some other really cool stuff you know we're also talking about uh, after the stout is at, you know uh, off loan and and back to you know its home in detroit probably bringing in you know a victress or a lancer or one of the the early fiberglass sports cars that were done before corvette you know tell that kind of part of that story as well so it's it's a kind of a permanent exhibit on educating people how Corvette came about with the ability to rotate vehicles to change it up and get more of the story told as the years go by. I'll throw in on the MG stuff. And, you know, even the, the museum that I was at, we had a MGTC and a TD and because the TC was the founder of our museum's first car. And what got him into racing and sports cars. And that's what the MGTC did, is it it introduced sports cars to so many people in the world. And this whole, you know, genre of cars or market of cars, whatever we want to call it, didn't really exist prior to World War II. There were sporty, fun cars and two-seat cars and race cars and things like that. But I think the real, the big launch of it and the explosion of sports cars happened in the late 40s and early 50s and we'll go by the corvette museum Derek will tell the story much better than i ever will and we're not going to let him tell it here because he has to sell some tickets yeah we just do teasers that's what we're supposed to do yeah, exactly you sound to be pretty busy um i guess i made the official announcement this week to most of my friends i've spent the last month i made a brief announcement on the podcast that i had left the barber museum and struck out on my own. I'd been doing some automotive consulting on the side, and I've created an automotive consulting firm, uh, help you with your restorations and things like that. We'll mention it as we go here, but just to let everybody know officially, job change has happened. The lawyers have been talked to. The LLC's in place. The accountants have been talked to. So this week I've officially have an LLC, Visions and Vehicles LLC. You can visit the website if you want to. And then on the other non-car front, I will say hi to Zara. She's been um, on the podcast before. She'll join us again. And uh, I got engaged yesterday in a very public way on a radio show. Kind of funny. I do this podcast, talk to a couple of hundred of you every week. And, uh, it was the first time I'd ever walked into a radio station officially and broadcast myself on air in the radio station. I've won pizzas and stuff before on air, but it was a kind of cool thing. Fulfilled my radio dream, so now I'm going to retire from the podcasting business, too. See ya. Nice, nice. You mean you you never got the chance to go into the studio and represent the, the barber or any of the places you've worked before and play one of their, in you know, morning show crazy games where you you go up against one of the guys on the the morning show and no no i, I used I, to do it in cleveland no i never never did that i've been on tv for the barber before but uh 
Never, never actually did radio. Um, we had some people with some, uh, what do we want to say? They, they never liked being on the radio or on TV, and that's what they tell you all day long. But somehow they always ran to be the first for the camera or the microphone when it got there. And I wasn't ever going to push it. So <laughs> we'll leave that there where it lies. And in Derek's interest and excitement out there, I, uh, there's a post we put up this this week while we're recording on uh, Facebook talking about the Keeneland Concours. This is a Concours I absolutely love. It's still small enough to enjoy. It's not uh, Pebble Beach, or I even feel Amelia's getting this way, uh, something you've got to go and spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars just to go to and enjoy and get a hotel for a night or two. Keeneland's middle of Kentucky, really gorgeous setting, very unique display of cars and the way they integrate car clubs and the concours field and the artists and the horses. And it's a great event to go to. And maybe we'll try to get to that event as a podcast. But what I saw interesting, and I love the idea, the, the category. Um, and it's something I think Derek has a passion about, has talked about before. And would you, do you want to mention what this kind of unique category they have at Keeneland? And hopefully I want to see other Concours uh, go with it. Yeah, I, I think it's cool. And actually, John, you know, John and I talked in the pre-show. Uh, I knew a little bit about this uh, ahead of the announcement uh, because I know some of the folks at, at Keeneland. But they're going to be doing a carriage class, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, obviously everyone knows here, uh, you know, that listens to the show, I'm the, uh, the geeky automotive historian that, you know, gets excited over anything that has wheels and moves and whether it's pulled by a horse or run by an internal combustion engine or steam or whatever. Uh, but I think it's, it, it, and John, I think you, you know, you agree with me about why this is so exciting, but, you know, to start telling the pre- automobile story at the Concorde Elegances and and kind of these, in a lot of cases, coach builders that would become automotive manufacturers or at least automo- automotive body builders uh, that made the early automobile a successful transition in the U.S. Uh, it's, a, it's a great addition to just kind of telling the story of the automobile and how it developed here in the U.S. straight out of the carriage industry. So, uh, yeah, I'm very excited. I'm actually hoping to get to the Keeneland Concours this year uh, to see the to see this class specifically, but of course, see all the other unique and, and interesting stuff they bring there to the Lexington area for this show. And uh, as John said, it's in 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 the Lexington, Kentucky area, which is absolutely beautiful. Uh, horse country, of course, so it's it's gorgeous there. And and what you know, what more fitting a class for the Keeneland Concours, which is in Lexington, you know, basically one of the great horse uh, you know communities in this probably country uh, to have a horse drawn vehicle class like this. So I didn't really put two and two together until you were talking there. I actually did a post back to our Facebook page. Oh, when was that? It was a week or so ago. So I think I published it February 19th. 
and it was kind of in celebration of Black History Month. And it's an article about the only African-American-owned automobile company, but how they progressed from being one of the top carriage makers into experimenting with the automobile before the Depression kind of ended up ending their business. But they went from carriage maker to automobile manufacturer for a few years back to a body company building bodies and truck bodies and bus bodies for the automobile industry before, like I said, they unfortunately the Depression caused them to shut down like it did many other businesses. And just one of those little fascinating things, how all of that stuff grows together and, you know, works together. And, like, Derek and I are both always on the same page and about automotive history and learning where things come from. Uh, I can understand, uh, you know, because who I am, I can understand there's some economics here. You know, my 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 uh, mother and stepfather used to have a buggy in their front yard that my uh, stepfather restored. But what did they ever do with it? I mean, they don't have horses in that. But what could they do with it other than display it for a few years and sell it on to the next owner? This, you know, all of a sudden, are we going to see a revitalization of the buggies and horse-drawn carriages and that and with collectors? Because these would be easy to store out of the way. Um, that just, but either way, it's a, just a great way to get this stuff out in front of people and tell another version of the automobile or another portion of automobile history. Yeah. And I always make the joke that, you know, it's, it's a good thing. I don't make more money because if I had enough money to have horses and have a, an estate big enough to have a horse, you know, farm where, you know, have a barn and a, and a riding area, things like that, I clearly would have enough money then to collect old carriages and I would use them. I would, I would hook the horses up and I would go for a ride on the weekend to town or whatever in a carriage just because how, how great would that be? I mean, absolutely amazing. What? I th- I thought all the money you had was more money. Well, well, it is, but it's, it's very little of it. I don't run my own consulting company like some people on the podcast. <laughs> Well, we're trying to run it. <laughs> and, you know, John, speaking of that, uh, the only African automobile company, uh, manufacturer, sorry, I'm trying to remember the exact name of the company. I had to look it up here, which was C.R. Patterson and Sons of Greenfield, Ohio. So a good Ohio automobile company, uh, you know, represent my last job there. It was the Patterson Greenfield Automobile. As far as anyone knows... Um, I've talked to, you know, not only the research I did at my last job at the, the Crawford Auto Aviation Museum up in Cleveland, but I've also spoken with folks at the Smithsonian and a, a few other uh, museums. It is believed that none of those cars still remain in existence. Uh, so if any of our listeners know of one that's out there, it's it's very, very sought after to try to find one of those cars and uh, get it on display somewhere um, for that part of American automobile history to be represented. So just uh, if you ever hear of one of those Patterson Greenfield automobiles, uh, let somebody know because it would be great to see one. Produced cars 1915 to 1918, and it had slipped my mind. I thought it was an Ohio company, but it kind of slipped my mind. And obviously with your previous job being in Ohio and a passion for those Ohio-built cars while you were there, if we could find one, it would be great. You know, there's a lot of publicity and stuff that could go around with it. 
you know, they say they can't find any, and that kind of slides a little bit into the topic we were going to go to. It's amazing the cars that are out there. I mean, we can, we've had the barn find episode and talked about barn find hunters and these TV shows that, you know, Wayne Carini and nothing against Wayne really liked the guy. They're not really finding, a lot of these aren't barn finds. These cars exist and people know they're there. But every now and then you do stumble across something in a garage. You know, the family knows it's there, but the family doesn't care. Uh, you get a somebody who buys the car new. In the, you know, the, the great-grandfather buys a car new and uses it for years and then puts it up because he's always going to do something. And, you know, they have a farm. And, you know, the farm's never going to go anywhere unless they sell it off to corporate America or... But, you know, after multi-generations, these cars just get pushed to the back of the barn and off to the side and forgotten. And, yeah, they might be worth something. They might not. And until a family member decides, hey, let's go ahead and get rid of these. Let's see if they're worth any money. They get forgotten. And to me, that's really what a barn find is. It's not everybody in the county knows the car's there. Not everybody... And sometimes these cars present themselves... And they're great. They've actually been stored semi-decent, and maybe they could go to a preservation class or, you know, what I'm saying is there very likely is one of these C.R. Pattersons in a garage somewhere in Cleveland, and it hasn't moved in 80 years, but nobody's seen the article on the car to know, hey, you know, somebody's looking for it, or they don't realize they have a C.R. Patterson. I don't know what the logo looks like. I wouldn't know one if I saw one without really researching it and every now and then i come across cars that i can't tell you what it is until i come home and go to my books or call Derek or call you know another contact that i have and say what the heck is this thing like i said some of the stuff presents itself and we've had our like i said some episodes talking about barn finds we've also had some episodes talking about collect you know starting your car after long-term storage or after storage kind of wanted to talk with Derek and see if, you know, we'll discuss a little bit about cars that, say, the car was put up in 1972 uh, by, say, the original owner. You know, he had owned the car, bought the car in the 20s when he was 20 years old. And by 1972, he's now 90, but he's not going to get rid of it. He's going to get around to restoring it. And, of course, it never happens, and he passes away, and the family keeps it, you know, the kids keep it around. They don't want to get rid of it because it reminds them of, of dad. And then the next kids get it, and, oh, it was important to my dad. Now we're due the the great-grandchildren. They don't care. You know, maybe I can get a Nintendo Switch for it or something like that. We want to talk about what we can do because sometimes these are stored very well and maybe could go to a preservation or conservation class or don't have to be disassembled and have full frame-off nut-and-bolt restorations. Uh, I think Derek owns a couple of cars that might go that way. My 62 Chrysler, I'm always on the fence on. Do I want to put it back original because it's really an untouched original car? Do I want to ship it up to Big Oak Garage and let Will have his way with it and I send him a few checks and I get something that's cool but kind of destroys history? Where should we even jump into this, Derek? Do you have a starting point or do we take come up with some hypothetical car and walk our way through it well i think my starting point would be um 
don't do what you see done on TV. <laughs> I've I've watched a couple of you know too many of the the reality TV shows where you know they may find a, a barn find car or something like that and you know basically all they do is throw some oil in it and get a battery hooked up and 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 they start cranking it over and they're going to get it to fire up and and it might fire up and it'll probably blow a bunch of you know broken uh, walnut shells out through the exhaust pipe or uh, you know, all the leaves and things that the squirrels and, and mice took in to stay alive over the winter or months or over the years of the car just sitting in a barn. But yeah, don't do that. Uh, you know, with, with my Peerless, you know, I know we've talked about that car on on the show before, obviously pulled it out of a barn that, uh, you know, it went into that barn sometime around 1960 and I pulled it out in 2016. Yeah, 2016, I, I believe it was. I'd, I'd have to go back and look, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. You know, and right now, I'm not really doing much with the car. It's it's sitting. Uh, I've got, you know, some other projects ahead of it with the some work on the Falcon, some work on the Overland. One of the big things with any of the cars that I've either dealt with in an advisory role as, you know, one of the conservation staff at the Henry Ford Museum, because museums that have been around a long time have had cars just sitting either on the floor or in storage. And uh, much like these, you know, barn finds, I'm using air quotes right now, folks, they might not have been put into storage really the way they should have been. You know, they just parked them and called it good. And one of the, the worst things that happens to cars, aside from the rodent population, uh, tearing into interiors, things like that, is the fluids that remain in the car. And I, the first thing I did with the Peerless was to get the crankcase opened up and drain the old oil out of it, uh, especially if you're dealing with a car that was put away back in the days of, you know, the earlier oils, the the paraffin-based uh, you know, oil and lubricant additives, uh, you're going to have a sticky mess inside there. It's going to be thick. The the fuel blow by from the car running draws moisture into that. The crankcase causes water issues. So, you know, I mean, the, the first place to start for me is always getting the fluids, the old fluids out of the car, whatever remains to try to at least stabilize and halt anything, any damage that is occurring from that point forward. So that's that's where I like to start, John. And I think that's a very valid point is to get in there because, you know, there's going to be, like you said, the oil, there's going to be the condensation from the last time the car ran, there's going to be condensation from storage. Everything drains down to the oil pan, no matter what. I mean, if some of those little rodents kind of partied on top of the motor and a spark plug was left out in that, some of their um, um, leftovers might have found their way down there and... If you go back to our uh, Evans coolant episode and talking about corrosion, you've got a lot of metals in that bottom portion of the motor that can be submerged. To be honest, uh, Derek's Peerless has been in storage longer than the car was ever used, you know, from 1920 to 1960, we'll say it was put up. That's only 40 years, and he pulled it out of storage after 56 years or something. And it's mm -hmm. st still in storage. So you've got to get in there and 
drain, drain the oil. And to me, then you go up and you try to look. You might have to pull the crankcase off, and you've got to look at some bearing clearances and that. Because if you all of a sudden you try to start it and you manage to start it with this water, urine, dust, oil, whatever conglomeration of fluid that's in the bottom of the car that's maybe rotted some bearings or damaged some things, you're going to get some play and you're, you potentially will do more damage and cost yourself more money in the restoration where you might have something that's usable with a rebabbiting where all of a sudden you run it and there's too much clearance in that. And now you're doing rods or a hole in the block because something broke. You've just got to take, again, take your time. Uh, I find differentials are also another thing. Uh, you know, these are bare metal pieces that were machined and assembled uh, that were only designed to be submerged halfway in oil. So anything that sat above that gear oil, which, you know, I think don't we use 400 weight gear oil and Model Ts or something like that? Six, six, 600 weight. Yeah, that, that ranks... Was the original, yep. And that ranks just a little bit thicker than the molasses syrup you put on your pancakes. And after... Yes. And after 50 years of storage, it's going to rank somewhere just before set-up concrete. And so you're going to try to take this fragile gear set and make it turn in there. In addition, everything that's above that fluid has had the potential of rusting or trying to rust itself in place. So you risk breaking that. You've got to go in and really do some hardcore inspections and we bash on the television shows a lot a lot of the time. They do this stuff. They it's just really boring stuff. Will guessed it on another podcast, The Driven, last week. Go look up The Driven. I was on it and the, their host Brad Hatfield was on our podcast. Will talks a little bit about that television and why he doesn't do a television show. And it's because they don't do it right. You know, there's a lot of boring stuff that happens in Derek's job my job, any one of them that I've had, or Will's job. And it's not filmable, and it's not something you want to watch on TV. But it's this, you know, fluids are very, very important to a car. Uh, we harp and harp on it, uh, or the television commercials harp and harp on oil changes and 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, whatever the mileage is. But you've got to change that fluid because that fluid extracts other things, and other things happen down there. And that's why it's got to come out. The oil might not be bad, but the half a cup of water that's occurred because of condensation and things, or the little bit of fuel that's got by the rings, is that's the stuff that you're taking out a lot of times. It's not necessarily the oil that's broken down. It's the other stuff that's gotten into it. Uh, gear oil, like I said, is a big one. And then again, you can go to the, the transmission. And we're, you know, we're talking teens and 20s cars here right now, I think, in the conversation. But when you start getting into some of the early automatic stuff, they're even more sensitive than the things now uh, with, with the, te you know, the technology they had at the time in the fluids. Uh, fluid technologies, you know, advanced more in the last three years than it did in that first 50 years of automobile or something like that. And we can go a little bit farther, but. Well, but I think before before we go too far, I think you just touched on something really important there, John. Which is, you know, especially the early uh, automatic transmissions, uh, things like that are, are very sensitive. Uh, they used a different type of transmission fluid uh, than, you know, your ATF of today. 
uh, you know, like any oils, any lubricants, any, any, you know, hydraulic fluids that, that have developed over time, they've changed. But the, the long winded point I'm trying to get at here is that is, that is the key thing to remember when you're dealing with one of these cars is that it is 50, 60, 70, 80, however many years old it is, things were different back then. And I'll tell you, in my experience, I've, I've, I've had a couple cars that I've worked on that had early automatic transmissions. Fortunately, in one case, there were no issues. In the second case, there was some slipping, which eventually led to the transmission just not working. And there really aren't parts left for those car- those early automatic transmissions anymore. You can't just go to a restoration supply or AutoZone or any of the companies that exist out there and just find these replacement parts uh, on on some of these components and and some of these you know parts of of vehicles that you're pulling out and trying to get running again. So you know, in the case of the one transmission, there was one person, one shop in the United States that truly knew how to rebuild them and do it right. I mean, I did a lot of research trying to find someone. Most most shops I called said, no, we don't touch those. Uh, and they said, there's one guy that does. And, you know, as John says, I mean, once once you mess something up, now you're spending a lot more money trying to fix the problem. If you're careful in the beginning and you don't have any problems, you know, that are from the reason it got parked, uh, you know, try to do this in a way that you're not going to cause damage and lead yourself to bigger issues. And that, that to me, that's the one big thing I always remember. People ask me if my, one, one of the biggest questions I get, because the Peerless has the early V8 in it, you know, oh, is the engine, you know, it, it, does it spin? Is it free? And I say, well, I don't know. Oh, why don't you know? I said, because I haven't tried to spin it yet. Because I have not had time other than draining the oil out of it, draining the fluids out of it that were still remained in it. I have not had time to open the crankcase up further, pull, as John said, pull the bearings down, make sure there's nothing in them that's going to, I mean, you know, damage the bearing surface when it goes in. The other thing is those cylinder walls are dry. You know, the pistons and cylinders are dry. If I start cranking it over, I could, you know, basically, you know, score the cylinder walls, uh, you know, which would cause the numerous, you know, blow by issues, leak down issues, uh, all those things. And and now you're honing, if not boring, uh, and trying to rebuild. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's just a cautious approach is, is what I always suggest. You know, you, you talked about differentials and there was a car I worked on and, uh, I'm, I'm not going to mention certain cars cause I don't want to, you know, incriminate anyone or, or anything like that. And it's never anyone's intention or anyone's direct fault that anything's happened. Uh, it's just not a, a, you know, process that's put in place that, that leads to issues. But we opened up the, uh, you know, the, the back plate of the, the rear axle, the, the, you know, the, the pumpkin cover, as some people call it, whatever you want to call it. And uh, to look at the the gears and the differential, and 
obviously the gear oil had never been changed from the days of paraffin-based gear oil. And it was about the consistency of peanut butter. And the car had been run numerous times and had actually cut a channel through what remained of the gear oil, which was now peanut butter, and was basically running dry in the diff- in in the housing. Uh, so yeah, it was one of those times where I kind of took pictures and pointed it out to people that you know this is why you have to inspect everything when you go to get a car running. And in, in going with that, kind of staying with the topic and off the topic, it doesn't matter. You know, I had said if you're doing it for preservation or or conservation. When I do a restoration, I like to know what I'm starting with. And you might think this is all a waste of money. We, I always like to make sure the car runs. I like to see what happens. So you spend all this money to verify, you know, if I'm a shop, you're paying me by the hour. And say so you're paying me 70 bucks an hour to go in and do all of this work, drain the old fluids, take the pan down, measure the bearings, put it all back together, put new fluids in it, which I'm going to charge you for, and then get the car running just so that I can take it all back apart and throw everything away that I just did. I'm not going to save that oil and put it back in after the restoration's done. But I know a baseline, and I can I can give you a much more intelligent, scope of work once I've heard it run or once you've gone through some of this process. You know if this you know, you know if there's any blow by, you know what the compression is, you know if a valve's sticking or broke or bent. You kind of have a feeling about some of this stuff if you can do it. Unfortunately, most clients don't want to pay for that. So you get into the the work and there's no choice. The only other way around this is to totally tear everything down and rebuild it all the way back up, which is always the most expensive route to go. Sometimes some of this stuff can be repaired. Sometimes the motor doesn't have to come all the way apart. And, you know, if you've got 200000 for a restoration, fine, we'll do it that way. But if you've only got 70000 for a restoration, Maybe we should do it this way. And, you know, that's part of where I think some of the clients out there getting cars restored need to be, you know, taught. You know, we know exactly what we've got. Maybe the seller should do that beforehand and say, hey, okay, I've put all new fluids in this. You know, it's always you always get more money for a running car. It doesn't matter if the whole thing needs restored. If you go ahead and put two or three thousand dollars into something, getting the fluids changed out and you might realize $10,000 more on the car. <laughs> you might realize that, oh, no, I've got a really bad car that doesn't run, and you're going to drop the price $10,000 too. But it's it's an informed decision, and it's being honest. And it's being honest, you know, if you're if you're the cl- guy that owns the car getting it restored, it's being honest with you. Um, if And I would much rather you spend $5,000 in the beginning and find out all of this stuff properly, then tear it down and find out after you've spent $80,000, you have no more money, it's going to take another $100,000. So the shop gives you back 18 boxes of parts, a chassis and a body that are not bolted together anymore uh, because you're out of money. And unfortunately, restoration shops are in the business to make money. 
So that you know, that's a little bit off off topic, but it's also trying to educate the listener here. There are reasons things are suggested. Why sometimes they sound like a money grab, they're not always a cash grab. Let's go on with revitalizing our car that's been in storage for 50 years. How do you, I mean, we've, we've talked a little bit mechanicals. Do we want to go more in on the mechanicals there, Derek? Or do we want to go interiors or paints or... Well, I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it all has to be looked at and, you know, like the, like we talked about with the mechanicals, you want to take a, again, a a careful approach and, you know, it's hard. This is where, uh, you know, sometimes you need to call in uh, an expert or, you know, someone who knows quite a bit about cars uh, and, sometimes specific cars, you know, an an expert in one make of vehicle, uh, because, you know, so many things were done differently over the years and technology was different over time. And there's even cars, uh, you know, myself that I've looked at original cars and questioned some, some things that didn't look quite right to me that, uh, you know, I thought, well, you know, is that truly original or did someone kind of try to make something that looked original? And after talking to, you know, people that are experts in that one specific car, they, they confirmed to me that, no, that is the way that company specifically did that. That is an original piece of the interior and yeah, it looks hokey and cheap, but that's the way they did it. It's always a cautious approach determining and and i guess from my end of things and and a little bit of you know john's end of the museum world john kind of went more towards restoration eventually with with vehicles and and left kind of the conservation field you do Uh, what you get paid to do (laughs) exactly exactly Uh, yeah we are you know we tend to always look for the original finishes uh, and and that's for a number of reasons you know my peerless it's and i I keep going back to that just because it's what's fresh on my mind it's you know a car i have sits in my garage i see it every now and then when i'm out there uh (laughs) which seems to be less and less lately but it, it it still has the original interior in it now the raccoons have had a pretty good time with parts of it and likely good chunks of it are not salvageable and you know i'm 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 slowly trying to put a plan together on how to handle that. But the key is that you you have to think about it. And both my father and I regret with, with one of our Marmons, we had some of the original interior left in, in the Roosevelt and we wanted to match it up, things like that. And the interior shop we took it to, we took the seats that still had some of their remnants of, of pieces on them and, I guess to to my dad and I, it just was in the back of our head that they would take the material off. We would find a matching material, which we went in a couple times and looked at different materials they found, finally settled on one. We thought, okay, well, it's just kind of common sense, maybe in our head that, you know, we would get everything they removed from the seat. The seats would get recovered and, and brought back, you know, all of the original remnants that were left 
the interior shop, threw in the dumpster, and we're gone. So we have no material left from the original seats to show people what the original seats truly were versus what is very similar that we were able to get for the car now. Uh, and that's where with my peerless, you know, when you, when you start looking at these cars and, and I don't care if it's a horseless carriage from the early 1900s, a brass air car, you know, a full classic, uh, whatever, even up into the fifties, sixties, things like that. Key is that you want to be very cautious, very careful. And if there's original interior in that, try to match that as close. If, if you're restoring the car, if you're, you know, if you're going to hot rod it, uh, you know, street rod it, whatever you're going to do to it, and you're just going to use different seats, different interior, I guess that's probably not an issue. But, you know, if we're looking at the true kind of the you know, preserved barn find, that you're either going to try to preserve as is or restore to its original specs. Well, there's nothing better than the original material to tell you what belongs in that car. Uh, and it, it drives me absolutely crazy to walk around some of the concours. And we know enough about the automobile industry over time that we know that certain leathers uh, have come along much later in the you know interior industry, and nothing bothers me more than seeing a a twenties era car with you know very plush, beautiful glove leather interior that's just might as well be out of a, a modern Lexus or you know high end uh, Rolls Royce in something like a, a 20s era, you know, Duesenberg or something. Not saying that they didn't have nice interiors, but they didn't have modern leather from the 2000s in it in the 1920s. That's that's a big point for me is that anytime I'm I'm working with one of these cars, I'm paying close attention to what the original paint surfaces are, what the original interior pieces are so that I can save those and either match them as as closely as possible or in in kind of some of the stuff I do, you know, actually preserve them on the car intact. I've always tried to keep everything from every restoration. When the client comes to pick up the car, hopefully they take all of that stuff and treasure all of that because they should. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes those products came home with me. And what, you know, Derek's talking about like with his as Marmon, okay, maybe they didn't want that leftover scrap interior, but they should have been offered it back. And even if they didn't, in my opinion, they should take it and then offer it to the Marmon community. Um, I mean, if you've got a okay, if you got a '55 Chevy and you have the interior redone and recovered, maybe we don't need you to save that those pieces because you know there's. Wish Will was here. There's eight different interior colors with 14 different patterns. Okay, and we've seen them all, and every one of them's reproduced. But when you're dealing with a Marmon or a Peerless or a Pierce Arrow or you know any of that stuff, the, the, those interior pieces can mean a lot, and they can also go a lot to justifying what you did in case you do go to Concours judging. Or the next owner goes to Concord judging, then go, this is what came out of the car. And then they can analyze it and go, 
oh, no, 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 that car, you know, your 1920 Pierce was restored probably in 19, the 1940s because that was a common material in the 1940s. And by the time you restored it in 2000, that 19, you know, you can't tell the difference between a 1940 restoration or an original car. One of those things you have to be careful of is that that stuff gets forget forgotten. But it helps you, It I think it helps establish some values. It helps with the importance of the car. You've got to be careful of all of that stuff. All of that makes a difference. And if the guy who restored it in 1940 would have kept a sample of the 1920 interior in a little box with the car along with some other little parts, the guy who bought it in 2006 to restore it would go, oh, wait, what's all that? Oh, it was restored in 1940. And there's, to me, almost a little bit more value in knowing the car had been restored than potentially, oh, it's all original untouched. To each his own on that one. There's some people, you know, they would throw away that box really quick and go, oh, no, this wasn't on, this, you know, was the original car. You know, Derek and I, I think, both looking at this from a museum standpoint. And I like honesty. I, you know, I, I say all the time, I don't lie. I just tell the truth. And that doesn't work so well in this because sometimes people don't like the truth because the truth hurts and you need to be nice nice to them and kind of fib a little but i don't do that i'll i'll tell you up front and you've got to be careful with these materials and such when you touch them and operate and you go see you go find a car that's been in a barn for 50 or 60 years you don't just swing the door open irregardless of what pain or what you know you've got to be gentle so that you're not tearing up rubber seals or um all of a sudden, I forgot what kind of they call the, the, the molding on the, the 20s cars. But that to damage that. And then you just don't plop down into the driver's seat so that the leather all cracks or the foam in the cloth seats, you know, just all turns to dust. You've got to take a few minutes. If you're doing, you know, say a Fiat Jolly, you got to be careful. The wicker seat might look great, but kind of think of the wicker furniture you've had on your porch for 10 years how bad it is you've got you know you've got to take a few minutes you've got to be gentle you've got to be gentle you've got to treat everything like it's irreplaceable because sometimes it is you know we can make a new piece if we've got the old piece but if you break the old piece it makes it really difficult for to make a new piece whether it be the restorer or whether it be you in your own garage I, I just had a thought, and it completely slipped out of my mind as you were talking because you you brought up some things afterwards, and and I started listening, and and you said fiat. I just I, I got I got way off track, uh, <laughs> but no, it's it's very true. And I, and I you know I know what I was now. I remember what I was going to say, which is uh, you know we we talk a lot about you know those original you know not damaging the original you know sitting down on the seat cracking the leather doing all those things and and i've probably said it on the show before multiple times the other great thing about an original car a car that hasn't been touched in so long is there's a lot of other historical information that you you don't even always think about uh, that that can be gathered from the car the thickness of the paint on the car uh, you know the original thickness of the paint tells you a lot about 
how the car was finished, what the car would have probably looked like when it came off the factory floor. You know, if it's if it's got very thin paint on it, like, um, you know, a Model T, uh, typically had very thin paint up towards the top of the car and a little thicker at the bottom because it ran down and um, sagged a little on the body as it was drying. Uh, again, we know that because of an unrestored Model T that exists that it, it still shows on. A car like probably my Peerless or a Piercero, uh, a Duesenberg, you're likely going to find that car has a very even thick coat of paint on it because, or thicker than let's say a Model T would have, because they typically tried to make those cars look a little nicer than the Model T's. So a little thicker paint, easier to, to you know pumice rub out and, and buff up for a little bit more shine in the paint. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's a lot of things that can be told, you know, we can learn these vehicles can tell us about the process that they went through in the factory of being built, of being painted, of being put together and assembled, you know, even down to, I mean, there's occasionally, you know, guys, you'll remove a seat from a car and you'll find a old paper or piece of paper under there from the factory or from the original owner. And it may tell you something about the car that you didn't know. Uh, you know, there's some early horseless carriages running around that have had restorations, but people have paid close enough attention that under the front seat on the, basically the removable board to get usually to get to the gas tank, uh, you know, on the underside of it, I've seen a couple early cars, 19 aughts, that have a piece of paper stuck to the underside of the board with basically a recipe to mix your own antifreeze to put in the engine during cold months. And there's a few of the cars out there that have that saved because people took time to realize that that was important. And even though they were restoring the car, that needed to be saved to tell that part of history. So, you know, it's not just looking at the big things. It's not looking at, okay, the interior as a whole, the, the body as a whole, the engine, the, you know, the, the, the crank, the pistons, but it's about looking for the small details. There may be some markings on a piece of wood uh, in the body of an early car that, you know, could tell you something. I mean, there could be, I mean, even in modern cars, there are markings hidden in areas that, hundred years from now are going to tell people something about the production of that car. You know, it's, it's about kind of looking at little details too. We're kind of approaching that 60 minute mark and I'm going, you know, God, there, there's a little bit more to talk about here, but I th should we keep going Derek or do we want to kind of wrap this up and maybe touch on the topic again? Because there's really a lot more to go to this, but I think we've really thrown out a lot there to think about and really, really consider as you're contemplating maybe a barn find or a, pulling a car out of storage, you know, take, you know, take a few minutes, make sure the mechanicals are solid, treat everything else like glass, very fragile glass while you're doing this. Again, every car is a little bit different in what you're working on. And I think a lot of what we're talking about is older unobtainium stuff. Heck, I mean, it's not it's not unheard of to go find a mid-60s car now that's been in storage for 50 years and 
You know, it's not all like that uh, GNX that just sold on Bring a Trailer a week or two ago for two hundred grand because it had 12 miles on it. And to be honest, that car with whatever, 12 or 18, whatever miles are on it, there's one on there now with 20-some miles on it. Those cars probably need more maintenance on them than one that's been driven every day and has 280,000 miles on it because of what happens over time. Time is the enemy to, to all cars. Time is... Time's the worst thing that can happen to them, and not using them is the second worst thing that can happen. You know, happen to them. Uh, even I think beyond totaling or crashing one, time and not using them, and that's kind of what we're harping on here. Is just because it was great grandpa's perfect little car, and it was put up 50 or 60 years ago and not used, it needs a lot of attention and a lot of care. And it's not worth the Barrett-Jackson prices you saw a week ago or two weeks ago. You know, there there's a procedure and there's some money in, to be invested to get things back. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think this is the way I'm, I'm what my what I'm going to throw out to you, John, which is we wrap this uh, episode here. And, you know, it, it, there's there's a little more to talk about down the road. We could always revisit the subject. And if the viewers, uh, you know, listen to this and think of something that, you know, there uh, pops into their head that, you know, they're thinking about if maybe they've pulled a barn find out or they're just car people that are like, well, you didn't talk about, you know, what you would do with the this part of the car or something like that. Let us know in the comments on the episode and we'll add that into the list of, of things we want to touch on. I'm perfectly great with that i mean to be honest part of this what we just discussed here for an hour you're going to pay me a couple of hundred dollars to come and tell you the same thing so if you do have that question about a portion of your car i don't care send send an email to no driving gloves at gmail.com and tell us that hey i'm looking at a 62 falcon that's been on touch since 1971 what would you do with it? We'll take an hour and we'll talk to you about your car uh, as best we can. Maybe we'll you know, have to bring you on the show and ask you some questions. But we're here to, we, we really want to kind of get more interactive with our listening audience. And uh, we want to get a little bit more back to the classic car talk. We're going to have some more interviews. We're not going to throw you 80 of them like we did at the beginning of the year. But we'll throw some interviews in here. And we want to talk about some classic cars and some hot rods and you know, Will will be back, and we'll be, you know, changing up some hosts every now and then. So there's some of the future show plans. But Derek's right. Got a question. Send it in, especially on this topic. Did we say something? Did we say something wrong? If, I think we've had a couple of people say we've said stuff wrong, and we've brought it up on previous episodes that, oh, this is why we thought this way, but maybe this listener knew more than us. So I think with that... um I'm going to say I'm out of here. Yeah, uh, I'm going to head out too. And it, it's not very hard to know more than than the three of us. So, uh, yeah. yeah. There, there's a lot to know out there. And I don't think the three of us combined know it all. So hopefully we know where to find the answers. Good night. Talk to everybody in a week.